welcome to the Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM or in one of our much-loved radio syndicate partners or in the Green Majority podcast. This month in the U.S., Philadelphia police have befriended violent white vigilante mobs. At least five men of color have been found hanging from trees. Effigies hanging by nooses uh, from trees have also popped up. The NYPD said that uh, its officers who drove into protesters with SUVs in May did nothing wrong. Militiamen who are trying to trigger a race war managed to kill two law enforcement officers in California. And in Albuquerque, New Mexico, Trump supporter Stephen Ray Baca shot a protester in the torso while defending a statue of a Spanish conquistador. Some mayors and police departments have been applauding such militiamen, and in this case, the police physically protected the militia before arresting some of them. Baca has not been charged for the shooting, but has been charged on a felony, on felony battery and carrying a concealed gun. Meanwhile, in New York, two lawyers of color will be given a mandatory minimum sentence of 45 years if convicted for charring the dashboard of a broken and abandoned police vehicle. It is, of course, an absurd sentence that the federal government is using to intimidate protesters, who are already being harassed and attacked not only by the cops, but by gun-toting far-right extremists who are being openly cheered on by Trump. Some members of these groups have declared that they are at all-out war with Antifa, which is a banner used by people to trying to stop fascism wherever it appears. Trump has, of course, also been sparking hysteria against these anti-fascists. Police in Mississauga, meanwhile, recently shot the already debilitated 62-year-old Ijaz Ahmed Chowdhury in his own home because they were afraid he was, quote, a danger to himself. All this is happening, of course, under the shadow of worldwide ecological decline, which could inspire the wealthy to rely more on more and more on authoritarian violence to maintain their material well-being in the face of increased scarcity and climate migration. Therefore, it is important to always be looking at the link between resource control and violence and the way racism has always been connected with environmental harm if we want to understand how to build an ecologically sustainable society that's actually worth living in rather than merely salvaging what scraps of the human species might remain around. So turning to environmental news, the Arctic Circle seems to have reached its highest ever recorded temperature of 38 degrees Celsius or 100.4 degrees Fahrenheit. The prolonged heat wave in Siberia that brought this record temperature is also causing severe wildfires and recently contributed to a fuel tank losing pressure and poisoning a nearby river that will take decades to clean. New climate models are suggesting that our climate is even more sensitive to greenhouse gases than previously thought, meaning that worst-case climate scenarios might be too conservative. Keep in mind that previous worst-case scenarios have predicted the tipping of our glacial cycle towards hellish runaway heating that could last tens of thousands of years. With COVID-19 still on the rise around the globe, our carbon emissions could easily rebound to the status quo, especially as people might start driving more instead of taking mass transit. Therefore, the head of the International Energy Agency, Faith Burel, is warning that our recovery plans coming out of, the, uh, out of the pandemic will determine our climate future. Fiona Harvey quotes Birol in The Guardian as saying, quote, The next three years will determine the course of the next 30 years and beyond. If we do not take action, we will surely see a rebound in emissions. If emissions rebound, it is very difficult to see how they will be brought down in the future. In the United States, millions of Americans can no longer afford their water bills, and a new study has found that over 1,000 metric tons of plastic particles are showering down every year on various U.S. national parks. Going back to the pandemic, Donald Trump has banned work visas and green cards issued outside the U.S., ostensibly because of COVID, and yet he is at the same time freakishly demanding that fewer COVID tests be carried out, 
because, as he argued at his recent disastrous Tulsa rally, more testing means more cases. At the same rally, the crowd erupted in loud cheers upon his utterance of the racist term that he keeps using, Kung Flu. He simply says Kung Flu, and the crowd goes wild. Trump is, of course, still all about the wholesale destruction of the environment, provided it makes him and his allies richer. But leaders at the UN, the World Health Organization, and the World Wildlife Fund have all recently come out to state that pandemics are the direct result of environmental harm, and we're in for more and worse diseases as we continue to destroy ecosystems. The leaders are quoted by Damien Carrington for The Guardian as saying, quote, We must embrace a just, healthy, and green recovery and kickstart a wider transition, transformation, towards a model that values nature as the foundation for a healthy society. Not doing so, and instead attempting to save money by neglecting environmental protection, health systems, and social safety nets, has already proven to be a false economy. The bill will be paid many times over. Rod Minchin quotes scientist and TV presenter Liz Bonin for The Ecologist as recently saying, quote, Make no mistake, this emerging infectious disease came as a result of our incessant need for extraction of resources and the way we use and manipulate wildlife. When it comes to the lessons that we can potentially learn about doing things differently post-COVID-19, it is about living more sustainably and not relying on stimulus packages that are going to boost the same industries that are responsible for our environmental crisis, the fossil fuel industries. And you are still listening to The Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM or on one of our loved radio syndicate partners or on The Green Majority podcast. I am uh, David Hostetter with Stefan Hostetter and Lauren Latour. How you doing? Fine. And uh, we're going to now move on to Ontario, which is also doing fine. No, it's um, not. So the beloved animal rights activist, Reagan Russell, recently died after reportedly being run over by a pig transport truck as she and other activists were protesting a slaughterhouse in Burlington. Her death came only two days after the passing of Bill 156 in Ontario, which has made it illegal to block animal transport trucks and has raised fines for trespassing on farms and food plants. Lawyer and executive director of animal justice Camille Labchuk called the bill, quote, an unconstitutional law that will inevitably be struck down by the courts after a costly legal challenge. She put out a statement about the bill on the 17th that reads in part, quote, Today is a dark day for animals in Ontario and for transparency and free expression. Ontario's ag-gag law makes a bad situation for far worse for animals. Animal farming is already highly secretive, with animals locked up behind closed doors with no regulations to protect their welfare and no government inspections to monitor their well-being. Transparency in the food system is needed now more than ever before. Slaughterhouse workers across the country are being infected and dying of COVID-19. Meanwhile, deadly viruses regularly emerge from factory farms, including bird and swine flu legislation that covers up conditions that can cause zoonotic, zoonotic diseases, unsafe work environments, and animal cruelty will have deadly consequences for humans and animals alike. Mining companies, meanwhile, have had their services designated as essential, which means they are benefiting from Ontario's COVID-excused slashing of environmental consultation and regulation, and could also see less opposition from indigenous groups who are obviously preoccupied with the pandemic. An environmental defense has started a petition against Ontario's new COVID recovery plans. They write, quote, The Ontario government is proposing to allow destructive quarries and gravel pits in the homes of endangered species, our most vulnerable plants and animals. 
They are also considering allowing a massive increase in the amount of farmland, forests, and other natural areas that will be converted to sprawling subdivisions, highways, and roads, claiming that this will help us in the economic recovery from COVID-19. On the same topic, Jeff Gray wrote last month in the Globe and Mail, quote, Ontario's progressive conservative government has issued a series of special orders to approve a handful of plans from prominent Ontario prominent Toronto area developers and quash any potential opposition, saying the projects are needed to help the economy recover after the COVID-19 pandemic. Known as Minister Zoning Orders, they allow Municipal Affairs and Housing Minister Steve Clark to make a final ruling on how a piece of land is used in the province with no appeals. In just over a year, Mr. Clark has issued eight new zoning orders, more than his Liberal predecessors did over the entire last decade in office. He issued four orders in one day alone last month, including one to okay the destruction of three small protected wetlands to make way for a large warehouse and distribution center in Vaughan, and another to allow a retirement community to be built on farmland in Markham and Whitechurch, Stouffville. Yeah, so there's obviously a lot there. and so. But before I throw to you, Lauren, the one thing I just have to highlight, I think, because a lot of the discourse around COVID response has been focused federally and in the concept and ability for the federal government to, to sort of take this moment. And in the fact that it is a minority government means that more voices could be actually heard and maybe actually be a part of a truly decent response, which I, which we still need to be pushing for uh, and we'll get to uh, again. But the, the provinces are, are so much more powerful when it comes to jurisdiction that really, if you are looking at what a fulsome response would be without buy-in from the provinces, you know, we're going to be hamstrung a little bit. And so, I, I, you know, the fact that that sits squarely at the feet of Doug Ford, whose seemingly most imaginative idea is maybe we should have four more lanes on a highway, uh, does not give me a lot of hope. Um, but, but to you, Lauren. Yeah, no, you bring up a good point, and and it makes me sort of think that at least um, from the position of somebody who is who's fairly involved in the climate movement and has been fairly involved in in a lot of like efforts around just recovery work, um, all of our focus so far, seemingly a lot of the focus so far, has been lodged at the federal level or in some cases the municipal level, um, and and I think oftentimes we kind of ignore the provinces because. Um, to focus on them gets complicated and sticky really quickly and also disheartening really quickly depending on where in the country you reside. Um, but I think this is maybe a really, really good example of why we need to push harder on the provinces, um, even slash especially in the case of a province like Ontario where we do have such um, a difficult provincial government to work with. Uh, because if we don't push them and we don't demand demand anything of them, they will continue to run roughshod. And we, and we have seen in some cases, um, the Ford government rolling back on some of their, their worst measures. Um, like I know, like earlier this spring, we were talking about all of the terrible environmental regulations. They're sort of like, they were, they were intending to, um, pull back on uh earlier on in covid and and we've now seen that that since then because there was such an uprising of anger around that lack of regulation of certain um of certain uh fields and certain sectors they actually they, they put those regulations back in place because people were angry enough so basically i guess what i'm saying there is um intervention lobbying direct action gets the goods and maybe we do need to focus a little bit more on the provincial government as annoying as they can sometimes be but uh, specifically what, what we have seen with this is that like these exact cases are why we really, really, really need to emphasize going forward that infrastructure projects must have climate qualifiers tied to them if they're to receive funding. Um, stimulus projects like they cannot risk our homes, our communities, uh, the homes and communities of marginalized peoples or the homes and communities of non-human animals as well, um, if they're to receive funding. And, and those are regulations and those are policies that we still have room and we still have time to, to put those uh, qualifiers on in the next few months. We know that um, although, although a lot of sort of uh, COVID recovery measures have already been put in place and a lot of funding has, has already been allocated, there still is recovery legislation coming out. So there still is time for us to demand things like climate and environmental qualifiers so that if a company is going to get money from the government, whether it be at the federal level or provincial or potentially municipal level, though 
municipalities don't have a ton of money to throw around. But anyway, if they are to receive that funding for their for their infrastructure project, their infrastructure project has to be in line with a zero by 2050 reduction target, theoretically, for instance. Um, and that's something we have to push for. A phrase that I've, that I've heard a couple times recently is the idea that um, in the past, we've always been pushing for projects that are shovel ready. We need projects that are shovel ready. We need infrastructure that we can start right away so we can get people back to work. And that is important and that is necessary. But we also need projects that are shovel worthy, that are worthy of our taxpayer dollars, that are worthy of our time and investment. So it's not just about getting getting shovels in the ground and making a whole bunch of corporations a ton of money. It's about it's about providing for our communities in a meaningful, long lasting way. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned you managed you managed to mention two different things that relate to two different conversations that we'll be having later uh, on this show, not just this show, but in future shows. One is probably next week we'll be airing a conversation that I had with Julia Levin from Environmental Defense, where she speaks directly about green strings and and the push towards. Uh, I expect to see. I believe it might even be as early as next week a really a report talking about sort of what these types of green strings could be that require these types of infrastructure projects to actually sort of match. And then uh, the second thing is is this concept of shovel-worthy, which actually, interestingly, came up in a conversation that I had recently with, with um, Joanna Kiriazis from, from Clean Energy Canada, uh, who, who was part of the Resilient, the resilient Recovery mo- Movement, which is much more of a, of a clean energy and clean tech conversation. Even there, she highlighted that sort of need to ensure things are shovel-worthy and not just shovel-ready. So it seems like those types of conversations are being had uh, across sectors uh, within, within, within Canada and, and very important on, on both fronts. And you sort of hit something there I thought that was quite important, which was this idea that the, the, the Canadian government has already actually already done some of this, too. Like some of the very early stuff they reported did have some expectations for these, um, these companies to, to increase their environmental reporting. Now, that's, that's, that's reporting, so you need more than that. But we've already seen them start to do that. So I definitely think there's, there's room there to push it forward, especially if, you know, you're not necessarily going to trust the Ontario government or, the, or any other provincial government to really take these things at face value. You know, if you like in the same way that you know, the, the, the federal government has decided that it's going to provide, um, you know, health care uh, w- through the taxing system. And, but the only way you get the health care is if you agree to the sort of their terms. I think there you have to see a similar thing with some of these pieces of requiring provinces to ensure that they aren't going to undermine some of the environmental rules and regulations that will, might, that can be packaged into this thing. You know, it's not helpful if you release something with all these great regulations that can then be undermined by by the local governments or else, you know, we're back at square one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's an interesting conversation sort of around like the fallibility of those regulations that that we might end up touching on in the next story but is actually something i would like to come back to in the coming weeks sort of around count like uh climate accountability legislation and how we make sure our climate legislation and our environmental regulations are legally binding in a way that that isn't easy to unravel if we get in a kenny government or a rob ford government so um yeah, a conversation that would be fun to return to. And also, full disclosure, I've seen the Green Strings report. That wasn't that wasn't an original Lauren Latour idea there. <laughs> that that was that was taken from the report that, that y'all are going to dig into later on. Well, that's well, still still a unexpected uh, usefulness of, given that you did not know that concert had happened. So we're counting it as a win, regardless. Uh, let's move on to the to the Paris Accord. So, um, climate scientist Kevin Anderson and natural resources and sustainable development researcher Isaac Stoddard have written an article for The Ecologist in which they argue that even the most climate progressive of the wealthier Paris Agreement countries are actively choosing to fail miserably and that we have for the last 30 years swallowed our own lies about technology and green growth. The authors admit that the 1.5 and 2 degrees Celsius goals are not even safe thresholds, so they represent the least worst outcome. But they still ask what chances we have of meeting even these targets, how the carbon budget could most fairly be divided between nations, um, and how we can prevent countries from lying about their true emissions. They start by positing a global carbon budget of 660 gigatons of CO2 through 2100. 
This means we can't emit more than more CO2 over the next 80 years than we would if we continued our current levels for another 18. So the carbon emissions we would be producing, if nothing changed, over the next 18 years need to be stretched into 80 years and further. Because of the slimness of the budget, the authors admit that their Paris compliance scenario unfairly assumes that quote-unquote developing nations, a category that includes China and just means nations with a comparatively lower per capita GDP, that these nations will still be emitting much less carbon per capita than developed nations by 2050. The authors then derive a carbon budget between, the, between these quote-unquote developed nations of 95 to 136 billion tons of, three, of CO2 through 2100. They then look at what this means for climate progressive countries like the UK and Sweden. These are countries that are just more seen as more climate progressive than others. Using a grandfathering process in which, quote, each nation receives a proportion of the future carbon budget in line with their recent proportion of emissions, they conclude that the UK and Sweden would have to be decreasing emissions by 10% a year by 2025 and by 20% a year by 2030 and achieve a real zero carbon energy system by 2035. Both these countries, however, give themselves much more generous carbon budgets than the authors calculate and don't even have strong enough agendas to directly address even those. The authors offer two reasons for these weak agendas. Uh, expecting poorer nations to compensate for their greed or the acceptance of Paris as a convenient rhetorical distraction that lets the status quo continue a bit longer. If every developed country missed their targets uh, by the same amount, we would be headed towards 3 degrees Celsius of warming. The authors point out that we are already relying on negative emissions technologies for even our 3 degrees Celsius scenarios, and yet these technologies don't even exist at scale, so any hope we have at all of meaningful reduction relies on non-existent tech, as well as reducing our total emissions to zero within the next couple decades. They write, quote, What we currently have is polished green tweaks, a focus on efficiency rather than absolute emissions, rousing speeches by ministers, academics rewarded for ever more reductionist tinkering, journalist re journalists regurgitating soothing technical balms, and anyone daring to ask system-level questions quickly admonished and silenced. Either we continue with deception and dithering only to be battered by the consequent climate impacts, or we immediately begin a deep and profound transformation. Ultimately, both are different worlds from where we reside today. The former allows high emitters a few years' reprieve at the cost of long-term devastation for many, if not all. The latter repurposes the labor, resources, and productive capacity of society from serving primarily the high-consumption lifestyles of the relative few to delivering a sustainable epoch for the many. Yeah, so that's depressing. The thing I'm struck by, I guess, is a something that I will continue to say, which is just the fact that the report like this and a conversation like this just undermines just how important whatever the response to COVID is going to be. You know, there, there, it cannot be said enough or stressed enough, I don't think, that However, the response that we will be, we have to rebuild in some, in many ways the the world that existed before, um, or, or not 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 before, as in like we have to rebuild the world, uh, and we it has to be different than what it was before. Like there there obviously has to be a huge investment uh, across uh, the globe to to bring to bring us back from from what will be an incredible recession that that's already well well documented and and how we do that is going to be unbelievably important for not just the next couple years but the decade and I think this decade then defines the next hundred is easily and the other thing I'm struck by and then I'll throw to you Lauren is how much I think the only the major hope I think that we have, which I, which is not even like I, I say hope as in like what would maybe let us do this, not actually that I have a hope this will happen. <laughs> let me parse that out. Is you desperately need a significant world power 
country to basically be like, we're doing this. And, 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 and then to get everyone else on side. You know, there's, there's enough, I think, out there with the, how much the EU is pushing this forward uh, and trying to find ways of doing this and other countries that I think would come along if one of the sort of major world powers was able to get enough going on. But, like, it, you know, it's, it's, it's written into the, into the bones of environmental studies uh, how basically the U.S. decided to deal with the ozone layer because it would make them a bunch of money on patents, and they did, and it worked, and, it, and everyone went along with it in a matter of minutes. Um, and obviously that was through a lot of pressure and also because they were gonna make a lot of money on, on, on HFC pat patents, but, but still it, it, it required that sort of push. And like outside of that, it's very hard to see how the international community does this. And, and maybe that's cause I'm not seeing things right. Maybe what's actually possible is that in every individual country, there would be enough push from internally to change systems culturally that you might get there. But I do think you need something more than that as well yeah yeah i won't dwell on it but there is something to be said for the idea that like uh I, god i feel like i'm back in like undergrad talking about like game theory and in, in international relations courses but yeah there's something to be said for the idea that there's 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 this situation we're in where until a global hegemon shows that they're putting forth effort to this in good faith nobody else has financially or from a power standpoint the incentive to also invest their time and money and resources in this so we need somebody to step up be the big boy be noble and take this plunge in order to sort of get that ball effectively rolling and there are countries that like yes like sweden and less like the yes like the uk who who have made progress but clearly what this paper shows us is that is that the progress they've made hasn't been hasn't been enough um and i think one of those things it's they sort of allude to it a little bit um, in sort of their like the two reasons they cite for why this might be the case, one being that that these uh, larger colonial nations still just expect smaller developing nations to to sort of bite the bullet and suffer more. Um, and and then there's that the the one they sort of they phrase it as like Paris is just a rhetorical distraction. And and I don't necessarily know that I think of Paris as a rhetorical distraction, but I do sort of think of the idea that um, Paris is still this aspirational target, but one that is viewed within the political class as ultimately unattainable and it's viewed as unattainable because within within um at least like western uh liberal democracy political systems we tend to work within an incrementalist framework and it's the idea that you have a limited amount of political capital you have to expend within a four-year period and you only and you're going to divvy it up between your different interest areas and that means that you can only make a small amount of progress within each interest area in a given year and it and it lends itself to the case that well actually incrementalism doesn't but like the fact that under an incrementalist model we've we've made so little progress is a testament to the fact that we do need the massive systemic change that something like the green new deal is proposing and why it's really important that we make sure a concept like the green new deal isn't um co-opted by a political class that advocates for incrementalism and advocates for centrism because because then then we're not going to get what we need then we're not going to get that wartime effort that uh, depression era effort that, that we actually do require if we're going to lift ourselves up out of this catastrophe. Um, moving away from that, the sort of big political, exciting minded stuff. Um, I also just wanted to touch on the fact that this paper reminded me of why I love a carbon budget model um, when it comes to accounting. Um, for, for, for the amount of carbon a country has to expend. For a really long time, we've relied on um, sort of like a target-based model, like we have, to, we have to reduce this percentage by this year, blah, blah, blah. And that's great and that's effective, but there is something to be said for um, how much a budget sort of provides a really easy to understand means of CO2 emissions reduction framing, while it also allows for like increased accountability because it allows us to say, you, X nation, must reduce or must keep your it's not so much, it's, it's about reducing, but it's framed as the idea that you have this much to spend and you can only spend this much within this period of time. And it also allows us to then break it down to the subnational level as well and say, you province have this much to spend, you city have this much to spend or sector have this much to spend. So it makes it, it switches the focus from being less about, I have to restrict myself this much to saying, okay, I have 10 carbon dollars to spend how am I going to spend those 10 carbon dollars which is it's just a different way of thinking about it and is in some ways an easier an easier more tangible way of thinking about carbon usage yeah and I think it also allows for a much more simple understanding of what the real hard limits are 
you know, like, you know, in that in that the target system where you sort of say you must, you know, reduce your emissions by X percentage over time and you're not doing it there sort of gives you the under the gives you the belief that you could just keep doing this forever. Right. Like it's like, oh, yeah, you, you, if you eventually you hit your target, then that's that seems more fine. Whereas, you know, the budget sort of gives you a, an amount. And if you go over that amount, you have then done too much. And that's like that point is is much more finite. So I feel like it does actually hold you. I think it holds you more accountable. Absolutely. And the, and there is something to be said for the fact that when you when you're using this sort of reducing to like reducing 100% by this year, it requires you to establish a base year and it requires you to know that base year and everybody else to have the same base year or a similar base year if you're going to have a like a comparative reduction target. So anyway, yeah, big advocate for for the budget model. And yes, exactly. The word you used accountable, it allows for accountability a little bit more. And that is so important. It, it's something that in the climate world, especially in the climate policy world, maybe an, enough attention hasn't been paid paid to enough in the past. Actually, oddly enough, the UK has a really, really great climate accountability set of legislation. That clearly is working, but not enough. So it's, yeah. it's, it's not all about having the perfect budget and having the perfect accountability legislation, but that certainly does help us a little bit. Yeah. To go back to your previous uh, little, little thought, because I think, I think it's important um, to to highlight this larger question of the fact that we haven't got enough done, right? Like, or the fact that like, you know, that Paris was, you know, sort of a distraction. Like, I think the Paris Accord, if it was then combined with United States government that actually wanted to do stuff on climate and spent four years on climate, that's a very, we're talking about a very different accord than we are now, right? Like the, the 2020 version of looking back on it is very different than the 2016 actually taking it seriously for four years and trying to doing something. I still don't think we'd be as far as we need to be, but I think you'd be further along. But, and I connected to that, what I, what I can't get, what can't get out of my head is if I had to describe what the environmental movement has been doing over the last 10, 15 years, it feels like it's been sort of weakening the underbelly of the, of the oil economy, uh, to allow for it to be toppled if a major power or a large group of people decide to finally be like, we're not doing this anymore, right? Like, I think if there's the, the small incremental victories that we've seen, the, the amount of work to be done to remove social licensing, you know, the amount of work to be done to push against pipelines and stuff like that, to me, the summation of that work has been to, in some ways, you know, if, if, if the oil industry is a dragon that is preventing us from climate action, it has been to, you know, to, 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 to make it available and open to maybe, you know, uh, take it down. And, and, and I think that's to me is sort of the piece where, you know, and at this moment, interestingly enough, COVID has done an extra amount of damage that that climate people could probably have never even imagined to do. And so and so you are, I think, at the moment where hopefully you might get someone to push it over and get to that place of like serious, serious action, which, you know, as this article very clearly points out, almost nowhere, if not nowhere, has actually be really undertook. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's that demand side push that, that for the longest time was ignored. For the longest time, the environmental movement was just focusing on like, yes, your individual actions, your sort of power as a consumer, as a, as a regular everyday citizen, and how much you can reduce your own personal carbon footprint. But yeah, there is something to be said for the actions that have been taken by the climate movement and beyond as it's branched out and as it's as it's sort of worked to, to develop ties with other movements as well. But, but that shift to the demand side of things and that um, the phrase you used, which is a phrase I love, that working to sort of scrape away at the social license that these companies have had up until now, and the the sort of the the permeating discourse that these were the companies that were the backbone of our of our GDP and the backbone of our countries, and if we lose them, we lose our abundance, we lose everything we have, and and the good work that a lot of communities and organizations and people have done to to sort of flip that on its head and say, well, actually, no, these are the org these are these are the companies that are holding us back. These are the companies that are doing the most damage, and and yeah, that's that has been a strong and concerted effort for probably upwards of ten years now, if not more. So. Yeah. Yeah. It's finally paying off. 
Welcome back to The Green Majority here on CAUT 89.5 FM, or perhaps one of our wonderful radio syndicates across the country, or maybe on the podcast, which can be found at greenmajority.ca. For the end of the show, we're going to join a conversation that was sort of mentioned earlier in the show with Joanna Kiriazis from Clean Energy Canada. And we're going to join the conversation in progress. It was actually recorded separately for a conversation that was held at the Center for Social Innovation. And it is a conversation between myself and and Joanna. And you may hear one third voice, and that third voice is actually our senior program manager, Shay Sano. So if that... She asks one question, I believe, in this as well. So we'll join that in progress. The The question that's sort of posed first is, what is a resilient recovery and what does that mean to Clean Energy Canada? In broad strokes, uh, kind of the, the idea of a resilient recovery is that obviously the coronavirus pandemic has led to unprecedented times, right? kind of shut down large parts of our economy and governments around the world are spending large sums of money um, to to, uh, invest in the economy, stimulate the economy and get us on the road to recovery. And so our thinking here is that we do not need to go back to the way things were. (laughs) You know, this is an unfortunate time, but it's an opportunity to shape the trajectory of our future in Canada and reorient our economy towards cleaner, lower carbon um, sectors, companies, products, services, uh, the whole gambit. Um, so in terms of, of the, the three principles that we have distilled the campaign down to, it's invest if Canada is going to be investing in the economy to to stimulate and create jobs, um, then those investments should be going towards our fast growing clean energy and clean tech sectors. The second is to act quickly um, by expanding existing initiatives and programs that support those sectors. Uh, Most companies in the clean energy economy are small and medium sized companies. A good number of them uh, are, are just emerging out of the startup phase and crossing that valley of death from, you know, the research and development or innovation stage into commercialization. And this is a pivotal, pivotal moment where, you know, they could, they could succeed or they could fail. And so, you know, we need to, um, we, we're calling on the government to act quickly and provide a stopgap to help the, those companies get through this time. Uh, and then the last principle is to send clear policy signals that Canada is going to stay committed to uh, the climate policies that we already have in place and move to, um, to continue to strengthen them over time. That gives our economy and the companies operating within it kind of predictability that we're still on this lower carbon trajectory. Um, Two other small pieces I want to mention, they're not enumerated principles, but we do talk about the need to retrain and reskill our workforce so that Canadians, um, that Canadians won't be left behind and they can be ready for the, the economy of the future. And then the last piece is that you'll notice our campaign talks about opportunities to bring some of the incumbent industries along with us. So mining, forestry, even uh, cement and steel heavy industry players, we see them as potentially being part of the solution, offering lower carbon alternatives, you know, um, so we'd like to bring them with us. So we're a little, you've now made this call about two months ago, approximately, give or take. Clearly it was, who was it targeted to and who are you hoping to move? What are the the levers you're hoping to to influence? So just to give some some background, kind of how this initiative started is very different than how it ended up. Uh, Mm. Initially, we were thinking the government's going to be looking for ideas on how to spend its money. Let's get a small group of us to put together a list of kind of clean energy and climate um, resilient stimulus projects that we could we could then advocate for um but as that group continued to get bigger and bigger obviously there's a lot of folks interested in a green recovery um then it started to get unwieldy and we we moved from more detailed recommendations where we went in depth to kind of a broader approach where we decided to set you know a few um 
higher level clear principles and then seek broader sign on. Um, and we, we didn't actually expect the campaign to go as far as it did. We, we didn't actively share it. We sort of threw it together a website, put the principles up there, and then the signatures were just coming in rapidly. It was, it was as if there were a number of, of companies, industry associations who were really on board with this idea and they needed a, a place to land. And so um, we were surprised by the level of uptake uh, right off the bat, given kind of the level of effort that we put in. And then um, as, it got, as it got bigger, then we started more actively kind of cultivating that um, that effort. So in terms of who is involved, it's a bunch of industry associations that represent kind of clean, different clean energy sectors and subsectors, um, some regional economic development organizations, clean tech companies. Um, it's, uh, yeah, overall we've got 367 signatories representing over 2000 companies. So, um, it's grown quite large. And then in terms of who the campaign is directed at, I'd say Canadian governments of all levels. So what's interesting about, I feel like this is almost, it's died down a little bit now, but during, there was a period of time where it seemed like every week someone was launching another call about sort of what the recovery could look like. And I'm interested if you could, if you could talk about how this, this how about your call might, might dovetail with other ones to build back better. Um, and so how we could sort of, you know, how, how those of us who are looking for a, you know, a better, cleaner world could, could all be pulling in the same direction. Yeah, absolutely. So they're definitely in Canada and uh, across the world. We are very pleased to see just the, the voices that are coming out around um, the need for the economic recovery to be, to be green. Uh, you know, these are not just environmental not-for-profits, um, there are also academic institutions, industry, the financial sector, you know, um, international banks. And so, uh, yeah, you're right, there's, there's a lot going on. Um, in Canada, uh, we have seen a number of kind of not-for-profits, academic institutions and think tanks who are doing great work. It's a lot of really bright people coming together and, and putting forward different ideas around a, a green or clean recovery. In terms of sort of where I see our campaign fitting is very often in our work at Clean Energy Canada, we kind of have in the back of our minds the, the oil and gas industry and the lobbying efforts that that industry uh, is a part of. They are incredibly effective. They're, they're well coordinated, they're, um, they're well organized, they're well funded. And so almost perpetually we're thinking, how can we um, in the clean energy world match that, that voice, that level of influence, uh, especially when our sector is so kind of diverse, it's diffuse. Um, we've got kind of electric vehicle companies, we've got electricity companies, um, clean tech startups. It's, it's yeah, it's, it's a lot harder to sort of organize us. And so that's where we started with this effort was we really wanted to, um, to bring together the clean energy industry and channel those voices into one voice, kind of coming from industry. Uh, I know that we are a think tank ourselves, but, uh, but yeah, we, we, are, we are trying to kind of create that alliance, a clean energy alliance, to then speak with one voice and um, you know, match those other powerful <laughs> lobbying voices coming from other industries. I'd be interested to know uh, what what types of measures would enable this in your mind. What what are the, these measures that you are able to sort of coalesce around? Yeah, so I'll offer some ideas of what 
kind of clean, um, clean recovery projects would look like or clean stimulus projects would look like. I just want to say these haven't necessarily been agreed to by the whole group of 2000 companies, right? Um, but, but they have certainly, they've come up in our discussions with some, uh, some clusters of, of those companies. Uh, so just kind of going by sector, you know, if we look at the building sector, um, uh, one, one measure or one way that the government could invest is just retro, you know, large scale retrofitting of buildings to make them more energy efficient. That costs a lot of money, um, especially when we're looking at commercial buildings. We think that is a an appropriate uh, target right now because so many people are working from home and those commercial buildings are sitting vacant. Um, on the transportation side, um, we are certainly in favor of investing in electric vehicle charging infrastructure across the country. Um, we Canada's done a good job uh, kind of s slowly building that up, but we need to see that accelerated. Um, and, you know, the numbers for job creation and the types of jobs that that would engage are great. It's everything from Canadian aluminum and mining to electricians who are installing those um, chargers in, in parking lots across the country. Um, electrifying public transportation is also a big one. We've been looking a lot at e-buses. Um, and then, of course, active transportation infrastructure like cycling. You know, those are super quick shovel-ready jobs that, uh, that can keep people out of their cars. We're very concerned about people, you know, foregoing public transportation because they're afraid to, to be in small spaces together and getting into their cars. If we have good active transportation infrastructure, um, we can help combat that. Um, a few more. So in terms of uh, power and electricity, <clears throat> Obviously, supporting more renewable energy is, is going to be on the list. Um, but then working on some interprovincial transmission lines that take some of the clean electricity we have, the excess clean electricity we have in places like BC and Manitoba, and then um, delivers them to the provinces that need it, like Saskatchewan and Alberta. Uh, and then finally, we also see kind of targeted investments in some clean technologies that are emerging. Um, we think that would be a, a good way to invest during uh, this, this stimulus and recovery period. Some examples of areas that are getting a lot of attention are hydrogen um, and uh, geothermal. And uh, these are both areas that specific opportunities related to Alberta and helping to diversify their economy away from oil and gas. Cool. I'm going to, you mentioned the word shovel ready. So I'm going to steal a question from the chat. What does shovel worthy mean? Cause I oh, love seeing that in right, your communications right. and online. Um, Cause everybody and their mom is talking about shovel ready, <laughs> but then I like how you frame it as shovel worthy. And so I was wondering if you could expand on that. Yeah. Thanks Shay. Uh, yeah. So we started off just, kind of mindlessly taking this idea of shovel ready. Obviously the government's looking for projects that are going to get people back to work immediately. And, you know, we were, we had these different timelines of three to six months or six to 18 months and what fits in those buckets. But then we stopped and we said, okay, this recession isn't the same as every other recession. Uh, number one, we are telling people to not go to work. We are keeping people from working. We've shut down the economy on purpose. So the idea that we're trying to get people back to work tomorrow, it, it's, that's not actually in line with what needs to happen from a public health perspective. B, often this idea of shovel-ready project, it's sort of construction projects that are employing um, men. And if you look at who's actually getting impacted by this pandemic, it's, it's less construction and more service industry, and it's less men and more women. And so again, just trying to fit that fit projects into that mold of shovel ready. Um, it just, we were worried that all of a sudden there were going to be all of these new roads being built for, you know, and it wasn't in line with um, the economic needs or where we want our economy to be in the future. And so we started thinking more about this idea of uh, what is a shovel worthy project, which is really just talking about which projects are worth doing. <laughs> and then if then you unpack that a little bit more, we haven't 
really clearly come out with criteria publicly that we're using, but internally we've had conversations um, that the projects would have to be in line with socioeconomic goals, which means targeting those people who do need um, help getting back to work, um, whether, it's, uh, whether it's women or racial minorities or um, industries that are particularly hard hit by COVID or by um, the transition to a clean energy future. Uh, so that could be tourism, that could be oil and gas. Um, it could be certain regions of the country that need it most. Um, another another criteria would be that it's in line with our climate target. So, you know, are the projects going to set us up for uh, a lower carbon future? Um, do they have other uh, other co-benefits, whether they're environmental or social? Um, yeah. So, in, in just in some, you're trying to get the conversation away from jobs immediately and instead look at what are the longer lasting ways we want to build the economy have sustainable good paying jobs and and make sure those jobs are getting to the people that need it most yeah it was interesting about that is that the shift to shovel worthy also i think in some ways brings out a, a, a statement of, of sort of underlying principles you're sort of bringing to this you know, there's, there, it is not just the part, the, the question is not just how to get people back to work, but how to get people back to work building something that is worthwhile existing. Yes. Um, and so I'm wondering, have you had any conversations or are there any sort of thoughts on those principles that you are bringing, all these other principles that you, you are bringing towards this conversation? In terms of how to define what is shovel ready or, or worthy, or yeah, sorry, yeah, what like, is shovel worthy? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so because clearly you're sort of thinking more broadly than just you know, it's not even just say how do we just support the clean tech sector, which is obviously a big part of it, but it's even it's it's more sort of like how do we ensure that quite literally we're building back better? Yeah, yeah. I think we've really been struggling with the balance between placing criteria on funding and and making sure it's getting it's going to the right projects the right places around the country but then also not placing too many conditions that the money's taking forever to get out the door and so you know one example is the federal government announced a announced bridge financing for large employers and this financing had certain conditions around executive compensation and share buybacks, but then it also had a condition that any companies who wanted to access the funds would need to commit to reporting on climate change information in line with some of you know, the, the global standards, the task force on climate related financial disclosure, if you've ever heard of that. Um, and then also talking about how their company plans to contribute to Canada's goal of, of reaching net zero emissions by 2050. I just read yesterday that in um, it's been one month since that financing has been uh, announced and not a single company has accessed it. And so I'm, you know, I'm... I'm I'm torn because was it the right decision to put those conditions on? I still think yes, but we also want to be making sure we're helping companies access uh, the money that they need. And so, yeah, we've we've just really struggled uh, in terms of trying to come up with all of those cr perfect criteria, um, but then kind of slowing the efforts down. So thank you so much, Joanna. Uh, I hope uh, we can you know have you back in chat as things move forward. Uh, and always great to, uh, to learn about what else is going on. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me and for a great discussion all.